BBCC episode 97, my realization of the day. Between the shitty men and horny women, vampires aren't the only ones sucking around Salem's lot. Time to take a hit and pass that spooky shit. Hello, hello, welcome to the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club, a podcast very high on horror films. My name is Devon Taylor, and of course, joined with my co-host in the digital ether, Garrett McDowell. Yeah, I'm nice and cool over here, just relaxing, got the AC turned on, meanwhile Devon is over there, tank top, probably short shorts, just I, sweating. <laughs> there there are no shorts, actually. Um, just completely nude from um, the waist down. <laughs> yeah, typically because Garrett's uh, in person, I, I don't record, uh, I, I do him the, the dignity of wearing pants, but today... Nah, uh, we we're still in this uh, LA heat wave right now. So yeah, you got I'm the in... you got the Anchorman Ron Burgundy thing going on right now. I like oh, it. Oh, <laughs> straight up, straight up. I mean, I got because I have I I have two AC units, and the one in the back is going because that one doesn't get picked up by the microphone, but the other one does. But it's it we're it's not as hot as it's been in the past week, so it's not too terrible. Yes, yes, yes. But excited to be uh, cooling off here with some nice fall spooky vibes for the movie that we're talking about today. Definitely some uh, 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 some nice chilling kind of, you know, uh, Pacific Northwest weather in this as uh, Stephen King is known to do. I like it. Yeah, there's uh, no one, no one, uh, no area in the country does fall hit quite as hard as uh, in the, the Northeast region, for sure. Something yes. about it is just a, a little bit different uh, as we are going to be talking about Salem's Lot today. Uh, Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot, the uh, the miniseries, not the 2004 uh, Rob Lowe starring miniseries. We are not talking that one. Sorry, Rob and Lowe fans. Also, not the new one. We we didn't get the time machine working in time. So uh, yeah, yeah. The, the the new one. Um, the release date was it was supposed to come out last week, and the release date's been all over the place. So, um, but we are talking this one, which is uh, going to be the longest film. Uh, covered here on the podcast, uh, beating out uh, previous um, uh, King adaptation, The Shining. Yeah, film in asterisks, kind well, of. Well, film, you know, it's, yes. It's been edited to appear Into like a, a, a motion picture, but it is uh, more often known as the, the TV miniseries. Uh, this is not the the shortened one. This is the full, I believe. It's three hours and some change. Um, yeah. uh, this was a, a rewatch for me, so I'm excited to be talking about yeah, it Yeah, we, we've only done a few uh, TV editions. Um, there is um, a movie in the... Um, well, actually... This one is not in the vault. There is a true lost episode. I think this one actually did get lost. Um, so, so we've been alluding to the vault a lot, guys. And here's the thing: we're gonna be uh, starting up our Patreon here soon, and those vault episodes, uh, some of them will be coming out. So here's the thing: there was a time where during the break of the podcast, where I was like still trying to record episodes to like you know just like keep the keep the juices flowing, you know. But I just wasn't able to put episodes out. In the midst of this, I lost a bunch of them, but then I recovered like most of them. 
but like two episodes did get lost forever and i think one of them was um one with mike vanderbilt where we talked a couple made for tv films one of them will get a shout out at the end of the episode actually um but yeah so so some of these uh lost episodes will be coming uh but joining us today is a guest that has appeared on the show like a year and a half ago, but you never heard it. Um, but you have heard us uh, podcast together on his show, uh, The Pod and the Pendulum. Uh, he is also one of the co-hosts of the Psychoanalysis podcast. Welcome to the show, Mike Snoonian. Hey, I am excited to talk this movie. I am, because it's very hot here in the Boston area, I am wearing just boxers. There we go. Uh, below this t-shirt. Take your pants right off, now. Garrett. What are you doing? I'm about to no. say I'm the only one actually wearing pants right now. I feel kind it's, of embarrassed. You're not. Cal's got his pants off. Like you know, it's a pants off party. It pants are for jerks. All right, yeah. here it goes, guys. They're my nice tearaway pants, like I'm a so, '90s track star. Now, I'm not doing the Walt White tidy whities They are boxers. So and we're comfy. We are very. We comfy are comfy. Right and I'm sure this is uh, going to be comfier for you, Mike, as you host two podcasts. So, you know, I, I'm sure because I know whenever I go on to another podcast, it's fun to like not have to do the hosting thing. But like now you get to after mm-hmm. hosting your two shows. Absolutely. Heck yeah. Well, I'm excited. Of course, it's great that we also have a Northeasterner with us to tackle this movie. And um, I was curious about um, your connection to Stephen King, who we're celebrating all month. Um, are you much of a reader? Do you uh, have you read uh, many of King's books? So I was very fortunate to kind of like discover Stephen King like right in his heyday. Like um, I was a pretty voracious reader growing up in in the mid eighties. Like I started reading him, I think as early as nine or ten years old. Like at a far too young of an age when I was definitely not old enough to appreciate what I was reading, especially mm-hmm. some of the naughty bits, uh, what our friends over in the Losers Club would call the pound cake. Hey, we're going to go King. ahead and move past that one. Right? <laughs> we're going to go um, ahead and move on. <laughs> all right. Um, so I remember reading like Cujo first at a really young age and then moving on from there. So I've probably read, I think I did a count recently, about 32 of his books, which is only about right. half. Oh, wow. So Still I am... I am one that it has said that like cocaine Stephen King is my favorite Stephen <laughs> King. Like that 70s through like 1990 is like that to me was like King at its best. Although I'll say like some of the new works, I'm really looking forward to fairy tale. I thought the outsider was great revival. Fuck. Can we curse on this show? Of course you oh, can. Yeah, for sure. Revival fucked me up. Like revival kept me up at night after reading it pretty much all in one sitting so he's still got like my all-time favorite author i think for a lot of horror fans that is the case so yeah i am always 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 down to talk stephen king do you say you say 32 books that you've read from him i think 32 books yeah wow that's 32 more books than devon and i have read from stephen <laughs> really King. <laughs> we had, uh, yeah, yeah we, we've covered a, a couple of short stories mm-hmm. here and there okay. but uh as far as the the full-length novels yeah you are well, you are here to educate us uh both beyond the podcast I, and in the podcast i would novel. say then you have nothing but the joy of discovery ahead of you if you choose to 
you know, if you choose to take it. I definitely little, want to just for my horror fan credibility. You know, I feel like I need to at least read two of his books, you know, just to just to, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm legit. Um, but yes, I, I prefer uh, his short story collections, uh, which uh, one of them. I did read um, uh, some of them from uh, the Night Shift collection, mm-hmm. which has a entry of um, uh, Jerusalem's Lot, which is a came after uh, Salem's Lot was written. So, well, um, Mike, I'll put you on the on the spot a little bit. We'll give you some time, but since uh, Devon mm-hmm. and I, and presumably at least some of the listeners, are probably Stephen King noobs as far as the novels are concerned, do you have like top three? This is what you're going into. Sure. Again, you don't have to Ooh, answer yeah. now. You can give it some time. Oh, but... I can do that right now. Uh, this is one of them. Like Salem's Lot, my, it's in my top three for sure. If And depending on the day, it might be my favorite. Like I love Ooh. Salem's Lot. Okay. Um, it, I think, is also like up there. I think, and that's a big boy. It's daunting. It's one of the big boys. So the big, thick. It can, yeah, <laughs> it's a bit thick. Um, and then I would, I might throw a curve and say like different seasons. Cause you have four novellas there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of us know them from the movie adaptations. You have like, uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank redemption. You have, um, the body, the breathing method, and then you have apt pupil, which, and technically none of them are supposed to be horror stories, but apt pupil it to me is one of his scariest works. Um, absolutely mm. love that so those are you know given this particular day that's what i might go with now i might swap that out and say do like a short story collection like night shift mm-hmm. um just because you can just kind of like read one story in a sitting and then kind of move on but th- those would be off the top of my head what i would choose now i'm curious and not to continue to go down a rabbit hole but i think it's it's appropriate considering mm-hmm. the the topic when you say like those are your top 3 i'm always fascinated are those your three favorites or are those like these are good like gives you an idea of what king is like but it's a nice kind of entryway like it's not going to like it's not super out there. I mean, it's sure. pretty strange for sure, but is that kind of like a, yeah, this is a nice like gateway Stephen King book. So I think with like Salem's lot, what you get is his first attempt at world building. Mm. Uh, and if you, if you're a fan of Stephen King, I think one of the things that make us fans is like his, he's really good at world building, whether it is like through the fantasy series of like the dark tower but also like with the books that took place in and around castle rock like your needful things your dark half uh the dead zone all of them like you got a real feel that this was like a place he does a really good job of like making it feel like a very lived in world and you just recognize the people that live there and salem's lot was like his real first attempt of doing that like you just Mm. want to hang out with these people it okay. because I think he does such a great job of tapping into childhood fears and also like tapping into the inner lives of children, especially mm-hmm. during that period where, you know, I mean, he's in his seventies now. It's kind of a lot more difficult to be down. I mean, I'm 47. I don't get 90% of the hip lingo. The kids <laughs> at the school I counsel at know. Um, and different seasons. Cause it's like, if you're, want something that's not horror but just like really gripping reads but something you can mm-hmm. maybe read one at a time in a different sitting and just sh- show that like oh he can tell these amazing stories that aren't necessarily horror stories you get a feel for like his talent as a writer and more as talent as a storyteller because so i think he's just there's really doesn't mm-hmm. have many peers at this in contemporary in terms of 
how good he is at storytelling. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I think that is kind of what grips him as a as an author to people. And I kind of wrote this in our notes about like trying to figure out what makes Stephen King's story so adaptable. You know, what makes directors you know cling to these stories and then want to you know bring them to life. And it's because, like you said, like he you know excels at this world building aspect. Um, I've always wanted to check out the uh, the Castle Rock TV show because apparently they kind of uh, bring that in where they're bringing in the different elements of this mm-hmm. like shared universe. Um, but some what I've noticed is um, the stories that uh, tend to get made into films are, like you said, his coming of age films are a big one for a lot of people. Um, just because I think, you know, coming of age stories are so relatable because everybody comes of age at some point. Um, and then you also have like the small town dramas and mysteries, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that are just, you know, because I think that is where, as far as like the films I've seen, those are, um, when the stories are the most interesting, whenever I care about like all this, the characters involved in it. And then, um, a lot of tales of, um, obsession, uh, specifically with, uh, artists and creatives of some sorts, you know, he's very reflective of, um you know, putting himself in a lot of his stories as we'll get into with uh, the movie today. So, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, thank you for giving us a nice little entry point uh, into some novels to get into from Mr. King. But now let's go shift to movie world as we uh, talk about our film for the day. <laughs> Salem's Lot. It was a uh, debuted in two parts on CBS as a miniseries, uh, November 17th through the 24th of 1979. It was directed by Toby Hooper, of course, of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre fame, uh, still fairly early in his career. Um, the teleplay was written by Paul Menashe, who was a uh, pretty prolific TV writer, did a lot of work in the 50s and 60s. Um, and he adapted King's book, uh, Salem's Lot. The book is 439 pages, which I find fascinating because it's a shorter book than Christine, but this was stretched into three hours versus Christine being a two-hour movie. So interesting mm-hmm. there. This story was um, pretty well sought after by many horror directors at the time, um, but King um, was uh, not impressed by many of the uh, screenplays that were given to him. Uh, King, um, you know, one thing that's different about him too that I noticed is, you know, a lot of other authors, they'll sell the rights to their story and then they kind of let it be most of the time. And, you know, the, the movie or TV show ends up doing whatever. Um, and, but, you know, King tends to stay, uh, involved a little bit. He does have like a lot of producing credits on a lot of his adaptations and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, because he, he did care about, you know, his work and, you know, how, even though, he, you know, did sell a lot of his books to be adapted. He was a businessman, but he also did still uh, keep his artistic integrity intact um, in in a way. So um, it was kind of a challenge for Hooper to rely solely on the atmosphere as they couldn't show as much blood and violence on screen, um, which LOL to making a vampire movie, but not being able to show blood on TV, really. There's like <laughs> maybe two shots of blood in this entire three-hour movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and the, they did it as the two part miniseries, but then they did, um, reshoot certain scenes to add more violence as they were going to have a theatrical version of, uh, released in Europe and they were going to be able to show some more of these, uh, violent scenes, um, and some more, um, some more of the horror elements, I suppose. So, uh, there are like 
uh, apparently like some other uh, different cuts in, in the ether of, of of Hollywood of Salem's Lot. But uh, we watched the uh, at least I watched the one streaming on Shutter today. So as did I. Yeah. yeah. So um, it was given a four million dollar budget. Cinematography was done by Jules Brenner with a score done by Harry Suckman. Um, no, we are not calling him names. That is his name. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes score of 89% on only 18 reviews as, um, you know, these older films don't really have as many Rotten Tomato scoring. So, of course, we go to the voice of the people over at Letterboxd with a average rating of 3.3 out of 5. So, Mike, what made you want to talk about Salem's Lot today? Sure. So, this movie, when I was a small boy and it was like playing on... I think it was like hbo in the early early days of cable i remember one of my older cousins was like staying over my house and he was watching it it was like seven in the morning and i was being a little nudge and he was like look just get out of here this movie's way too scary for you and i'm like no i'm like five years old and the jailhouse scene goes on so i'm like watching it and he's like you're gonna get scared and i'm like no i won't and fucking barlow pops up out of that jail cell <laughs> and I go running up two flights of stairs crying my eyes out it hide under the bed for probably an hour just like crying in absolute terror um this movie messed me up as a kid and I love it like it's you know aside from the depiction of of uh Barlow it's a really faithful adaptation or as much as one can be to the source material um it's probably hooper's like second or third best movie uh like in his oeuvre and you know i've come to start to appreciate a lot of his movies a lot more in the past few months kind of running through them there's just some legit like we kind of saying like well yeah it was a made for tv movie so you can't have a lot of blood and viscera but it is scary. I mean, like Ralphie Glick and Mark Glick appearing outside the window floating. Um, Mike sitting in the chair. Uh, it is like absolutely just with his like eyes glowing. Like there are some legit terrifying bits in this made for TV movie, like more than like most theatrical films would get. So I absolutely adore it. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Plus like the fashions, um you know like you get a young oh god you get a why can't I, fred 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 fred, fred uh, willard you get a young hot you know fred, fred willard. daddy willard yeah. in this with those mm-hmm. striped jackets i mean what's there not to love <laughs> yeah um and garrett you said this was a rewatch for you right yeah the first time i watched this i was actually i didn't know that it was one, a mini series and two was like over three hours long. So I remember like very clearly watching this movie and it just keeps going and going and going and then being like, this thing is just, this doesn't end. And then like seeing how much longer does this thing have and be like, Oh shit, this thing is like really long. Uh, this is a, a considerably um, longer like endeavor than um, you know, kind of what 
you would expect to see with something like this if it was to happen nowadays. And I imagine the movie is not going to be this long, but it's also shorter than what would happen if it was to be made in a, like a limited series nowadays, this would easily be like twice the length. It's not going to be two episodes. It'd probably like be like eight or so. So this was something that I kind of went in knowing more what to expect knowing more of the tone of this and was really diving in to get in some into the nitty gritty details as far as the, the plot is concerned as well as the themes and everything. So it's much more of a refresher for me. I will say that my opinion of it didn't change much, um, although I feel like I have a more of a firm grasp on what maybe the movie is trying to say. Um, I just I think it it takes a while to get there in a way that I think would be more satisfying to read uh, that would work better on the page. I don't think that the film has quite enough momentum uh, to keep me thoroughly engaged. I think it is sporadically scary. I don't think that the movie has a strong sense of tone as far as being like this weird, scary, uh, uh, you know, something's going on in this town, but we're not quite sure. It's got this very kind of plucky sort of attitude to it. it it's it's an odd kind of like um, almost kind of Brady Bunch kind of energy to it. It's very strange uh, uh, watching this. It, it definitely has made for TV kind of vibes. However, when this movie hits in regards to the horror, it fucking hits. This movie can be like startlingly scary, like so much so that I, I think that there are multiple scenes in this where the imagery and everything is just like, it's something that you're just not really going to forget ever. Um, although there are a couple of scenes in horror uh, of horror where they do kind of repeat you know, the trick, uh, the window scenes in particular, they do that scene a number of times. So, you know, it does overstay its welcome a little bit, but this is still one that I was able to appreciate the performances. It's definitely a cut above what you would expect from a TV movie, um, but it's it's not one of my favorite Stephen King adaptations. And in fact, I don't think this would probably crack my top 10, unfortunately, um, but I still do appreciate the film, uh, especially considering kind of the limitations of television at the time. Interesting. We're going to have a nice little spread of opinions here. Um, this was a first time watch for me. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned it in the last episode, but um, I my for for the longest time I thought that I had seen this movie like very young, but it turned out I had actually I was thinking of Pet Cemetery the whole time, so I had, I had seen <laughs> Pet Cemetery at a young age, but not this one for some reason I got those two mixed up I don't know why, um, and uh, so yeah so this was a first time watch for me, and um, I really enjoyed it um, I I. I, I agree with you on certain aspects that that uh, the surprising part of to me was that yeah it's not as um the horror elements aren't as consistent as I'd like or they're not as um woven into the 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 plot narrative as interestingly as I would like and this mm -hmm. is also not my type of vampires that I like um however I'm a sucker for small town drama. I love that shit. Whenever, you know, you have this uh, ensemble of character actors that, you know, you get to meet everybody, you know who they are, you know their occupation, you know who they're married to. And the way that that drama is interwoven with the mystery angle of them trying to figure out these killings and these mysteries and uh, the creeper, Mr. Uh, Stracker, um, you know, like I, I like, so like the first half of this, like really worked for me. I like, I really love the first half of this actually. The second half, um, again, once it does kind of start getting into more of the horror elements, which, you know, I've been 
like waiting for. I was getting excited because I was like, cool, I really invested in this little town um, and all the people. And then now once the horror comes in, like I'm going to like, you know, really love it. And then the horror stuff, I mean, yes, the, the atmosphere is fantastic. We have some really great scenes that I can't wait to talk about that are just, uh, you know, so visually interesting and Toby Hooper doing so much with so little on screen um, is really cool. But as just as far as the, the story of, you know, just the vampires themselves, what they want with this town, um, you know, Ben's arc, what he's doing, what he learns in this whole experience um, doesn't really hit for me. So um, so it, so it's a, it was an interesting watch. Um, it, Mike, do you know where the two part split would have been for this? Oh, boy, I think that. Oh God! I just watched it recently. Cause yeah, cause like in the in, I, the, in the shutter version, I mean, it, it does kind of. I mean, it just goes straight through, and like the edit is pretty yeah. seamless for sure. And but but you feel it in the pacing though. After the ninety minute mark, there's like a thirty I, minute lull where it's like, oh yeah, this would be the beginning of the second part. I think it's when Larry Crockett gets got. Oh, okay, um, that makes sense. I think it is. I, I for some reason, had that in my mind. I know, like, he walks out of the house after almost getting shotgunned, uh, you know, for sticking his, you know, little willy where it shouldn't go. And then you have, like, the hand come up, and I think that is, like, the cutoff Oh, point. the freeze like, frames. Be, <laughs> that right. makes sense. The I freeze frames are the commercials. I didn't think about that, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay, well, um, that that makes sense because that is a pretty climactic moment, and, mm-hmm. and I would have been pissed having to wait another week after week that kind of cliffhanger. Age, Damn, yeah, imagine age of Netflix. Can <laughs> oh, you imagine? Could you imagine, people? But um, but yeah, we got um more story to talk about first mm-hmm. before we get into the nitty gritties of the film. Are you ready to do your sixty second synopsis? I'm ready. I, I, I um, thought about giving you more time because this is a long movie, but at the same time, with this plot, I don't think you'll need it. So mm-hmm. you, you still get 60 on this. All right. When, All right. Do I, when am I on the clock? Counting you down in three, two, one, go. Imagine if Dracula invaded small town America. Uh, a writer comes back to his hometown to ask the question, can a house itself, can a place be evil? He returns to small town Salem's lot where everything is idyllic. You know your neighbor. You leave your doors unlocked. But along with our writer, Ben Mears, two new persons have entered this town, a Richard Straker and his mysterious business partner, Barlow. Soon the residents of Salem's lot begin to disappear, and we discover it is not just people up and going. It is vampires. Can Ben save the town? Can he save his new love, Susan? What's up with young Mark Petrie, a young horror lover? Salem's Lot, catch the fever. Bam. Ooh. I think that's the first time anybody's put a tagline on the end of their <laughs> yeah. 60 second synopsis. I like that. Uh, yeah, you, you hit it pretty good. Um, again, like, uh, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for, for the small town horror. And I think that is kind of, um, I think, an interesting place to start because, you know, establishing this world, I think, is, um, you know, the make or break for you for this movie. 
Um, you know, if you, um, and we get introduced to the, all the different characters kind of quickly. It's funny, like in my notes, they all just start off as like the way they, they look or their occupation until I figured out how, you know, remembered everybody's names, but, um, cause they kind of introduce everybody really fast, um, and establish you in, um, into, into Salem's lot. And, and I really, uh, enjoy the way that they do it like I said like there, there's this uh there's this kinetic energy by the way that they like kind of everybody's connected in these tiny little ways you know so and so works with somebody but then they're also married to this person who works with this person and uh, I really like the way that they um like link the characters together like that mm-hmm. it definitely paints this portrait of like vulnerability among the town and that even though everybody knows everybody's business it's kind of ironic that they are so completely blind to like this horror that is happening which really does have this uh way that the film can unfold this mystery and 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 really unravel it i think the the unfortunate reality for me though is it's it's not much of a mystery really like you're kind of figuring out details but it's it's vampires, you know, <laughs> like what's going on in this town. I've got a pretty square idea. It's vampires. So I feel like as an audience member, you're not really able to participate in the, in the, watching this mystery unfold itself. You're kind of just watching people start to pick up on the clues and, and try to figure out everything that's going on. I don't know if it's staged differently in the book at all, if it does kind of have this mystique to it. Um, but I felt, uh, especially on a rewatch, you're kind of watching these people go through the motions. And I personally, they just didn't feel as engaged in trying to uncover everything that's happening. Hmm. So I know when King wrote the book, you know, he had the conceit of like, what would happen if like Dracula was dropped into New York city and his wife, Tabitha said, well, he'd get run over by a cab within about 30 <laughs> seconds. So she was like, what if he said it in a small town? And there was the idea was like, what would Dracula look like? in small town, modern America, modern America being like the mid seventies at the time. And the book is set up similar to the miniseries in that for the first 200 pages you or 300 pages or so, you spend a lot of time with the town folk getting to know the ins and outs of it. There's definitely a mystery around the Marston house, this idea that like there's some sort of evil that lurks there, but you're not sure what it is. Yeah. And then the town folks start getting picked off very, very slowly, but it's very ambiguous. It's not until about the midpoint or even a little further in that like the vampire reveal is there. And I think King said he deliberately wanted to stage it that way. And he didn't want to have like a, like overt references to vampires. And I think sometimes like, even if we haven't seen this movie or read the book, like we're familiar with it. Like we have the benefit of hindsight. Um, So I don't know what it would have been like for either readers or audiences that are first seeing this. Um, you know, we knew going in like, oh, it's of course it's vampires the way it's set up. But I'm not sure mm-hmm. that that would have been the case, like when the book was first revealed. I think that he was like wanted to be very, very cagey uh, kind of around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, sure. and, and I see it as I mean, with a lot of King stories, you know, what he's writing about are never about the actual thing itself. You know, King is interested in fear, like mainly, and, you know, the different and tackling it from different angles. 
And I mean, yes, this movie, uh, you know, of course, it like seems obvious that it would be vampire styles because we know the signs and we know the motifs and everything. Um, you know, you got to think one small town doesn't know that. So, you know, they're not going to pick up on the signs as much. You know, of course, mm-hmm. you see the way that they, you know, talk to Mark, you know, who just simply has an interest in these things. Um, so it's like, you know, one, that and two, I guess I read in the book that there's more like bodies and like it, the the uh, infestation and is a little bit more dramatic versus in this. It's like, you know, it's a few bodies popping up, but mm-hmm. it's not like an alarming thing. I mean, it is alarming, but it's not like, OK, yeah. there's like, you know, oh, eight yeah, people have turned up dead. It's like it's like a couple people die and it, and it seems in these like odd circumstances. But but also like I like how they balance it between because like they're all distracted because they've had this um they've had this uh you know uh urban legend I guess about the the about the house and you know there's always been all these stories and everybody's been scared about the house the Marston house and you know so they're so distracted by that and just the fact that somebody's moved into it and is making an antique shop they're so distracted by that that of course they're not even going to be thinking about you know vampires and like that's kind right. of uh what you know ben i guess is trying to figure out throughout the movie because again like i ben as a protagonist not my favorite um he is kind of that every king he's a writer he's coming back to his hometown like is that why i'm not making any movies i haven't returned to arnold missouri to <laughs> to you know uncover a mystery yet but um you know so he he he's back and he he's obsessed with this idea is like the the house attracts evil and like, you know, it attracted me to come back and like now it's attracting these bad people and like that's what's causing it. And it's like, mm-hmm. is it the house or is it just no, some vampires just showed up in your small town and that's what's happening. So it's like I, I like that as the mystery rather than what is killing it. It's like, yeah, we know it's vampires, but like is the house evil or is it not? You know, who knows? Yeah. And I think there's also this interesting kind of debate that's happening in the movie that's, which is more of a mystery on kind of what level of autonomy do these vampires have? Like, do they have really a say in, in, you know, the type of evil that is being perpetrated throughout this town or is it just this kind of bloodlust, you know, like what is exactly the, the vampire's motivation? So that was something that I really enjoyed. Um, And then something that I didn't quite pick up on the first time is the film actually has quite a lot of queer undertones to it as well uh where that's just kind of a a part of the mystery where the town feel like whatever's happening up on this hill i think that that's a read that some people have there's a couple of lines in the film that uh that definitely allude to that kind of idea (laughs) of they're like i don't know are these guys gay you know Mm -hmm. um but it turns out no that they're vampires so uh that was something that uh definitely i i wasn't quite aware of when i first saw the film probably because i was just younger when i saw the movie i'm sure when a little five-year-old <laughs> Mike didn't probably stick around long enough to see that Did but, not. Uh, uh, Did but not. yeah that that was uh, definitely a, a pleasure to see too this more kind of uh, layers to that story one of the things I kind of want to build on what you said Devonis's idea like everybody is distracted by this new antique shop opening and I think one of the beauties of this movie is it depicts a time when like we knew our neighbors um I've lived in our current house for about, we've been here six years this year, and I barely know our neighbors. And that's not uncommon at this point. Like this idea that like, we don't make the same kind of community connections that we did 
when I was growing up where like you knew everybody on your street and you knew everybody a couple streets over mm -hmm. and in a small town, like everybody knew everyone's business and like a, you know, there was no internet. There was no uh, Netflix. Like there's a lot less to do. So just like these very small, like mom and pop stores opening up. <laughs> yeah. It was like huge. It was a huge deal that all of a sudden we have this like, kind of almost metropolitan like oh we're getting like a cool antique store in our home like it's going to attract other people to our town and you could almost see at some stages like the game of telephone going on where like mm -hmm. neighbors calling neighbors and at one point i think you have like the sheriff looking out with binoculars just kind of like spying the town and maybe i'm conflating that with the book but i just remember the sheriff like looking out over the town on just yeah. kind of like gauging what was going on and you have this real sense of community and it's almost like once the glick boys are sacrificed it's a set of dominoes mm -hmm. and each member of the town is like slowly going to fall into place and you're right like in the movie you only see a handful of persons that are trapped under that kind of crawl space area in the marston house but the book it, it's the implication is there and in the book it's very clear that this whole town has been infested mm -hmm. by vampirism by the end of it. Like it's yeah. a town of vampires. And, and, and maybe that's where, you know, it might've been better for you, Garrett. Cause as we kind of get into the subgenre stuff, you know, it sounds to me, at least from what Mike says about the book, that the book, you know, kind of dives into the vampirism a little bit more um, versus in this movie, you know, I feel like the movie is very much more concerned with uh, the small town drama aspect of it. Because, I mean, even when you think about it, it's like while things are happening in the first half, the first half is pretty much all, you know, just the small town drama kind of stuff. And the climax of that first half is literally a subplot that does not come back later in the movie whatsoever with um, with uh, Coley figuring out that, you know, Bonnie and um, and uh, Fred Willard are sleeping together. And this whole confrontation, because this confrontation is happening at the same time when, you know, there's a vampire attack. But again, like the the movie, you know, puts more focus almost on this, uh, the dramas part. And I mean, we and we still get a very good, like scary sequence of like, you know, with Coley having the gun up to Fred Willard's face and the way that he's like, you know, toying with him and everything. And, you know, so it's like we still even get, you know, some scary scenes, you know, when it has nothing to do with the vampires whatsoever. And I think that's uh, kind of a, 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 a great way to kind of encapsulate what the film is kind of doing um, in, in itself because, it's, you know, we have this whole climax and then Fred Willard runs out of the house and then gets freeze frame killed by the vampire, you know? So it's like, again, yeah. the, it, and, and you guys can go back and um, listen to me and Garrett's incinerator um, epi uh, uh, podcast episode where we talked about vampire movies and at the time I hadn't seen this one and I think it I think Salem's Lot got incinerated pretty early but uh, me and Garrett tend to want different things out of our vampire movies <laughs> we do and it's funny because like I'm curious what you think because you said you weren't like really in love with this portrayal of the vampires where to me this is like right up my alley because like not yeah. only do I love like the super super like uh, kind of 
cliche in a not a bad way that's just like the tropes that you attribute the vampire is like the holy water and the coffins and like the the stake in the heart like not only is all of that where they live in this giant completely over the top gothic mansion <laughs> it's literally like the house on the on the hill like i love all of that not only that but they've definitely got that nosferatu type of vampire look with the with the you know the front teeth as opposed mm-hmm. to like the fangs on the side i love all of that i know devon prefers his vampires a little sexier than that but I, like I just them. like how completely like the, the glowing eyes and everything they're the fucking thing, horrifying the thing about the miniseries is the depiction of barlow is a marked departure from the novel like in the novel barlow and straker are pretty almost indistinguishable from one another like they're both very erudite they're both european uh they're both very learned and cultured so barlow is much more you're typically he is like in the novel base much more in like stoker's dracula like almost arist- uh, aristocratic yeah and they decided to make a change for the miniseries because they felt like it just wouldn't it would almost confuse audiences to have two of the same type of character so you have like straker who not just acts as kind of like his he's the face his you know. medium but it's almost like his keeper yeah because like barlow in the novel is a much more of a feral creature Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah and and see and and that's um yeah I, I i prefer not just sexier vampires but i prefer the more humanistic ones and uh and it's kind of um vague in the film because at first they say that striker is a human so i thought he was just like um barlow's familiar but then we kind of see him have like a feat of strength and getting shot a few mm-hmm. times before he goes down so he's like yeah. kind of in that like in between space i suppose but yeah like uh as far as barlow goes in this film yeah, not my favorite uh, type of vampire because then, like, everyone that's getting turned into the vampires, then they're just kind of zombies. They're not really vampires, um, you know, because they kind of lose, again, that humanity. And there there are more animalistic types of vampires that I enjoy, which I will shout out later at the end of the episode. Um, but as far as, yeah, this kind, like when Barlow, he just literally is going around. And when he is there, he's just, he's very striking and very you know, the eyes and everything. But as far as like, I don't know, I don't really feel very intimidated by him because he doesn't really do much. He just kind of stands around and, you know, he does his like little things. And then, I don't know, just enslaving people and then them becoming just like these kind of more zombie-esque vampires um, isn't very interesting to me. I do like that this movie does portray uh, just like an attribute of vampires that we don't see very much. And that's like kind of mm-hmm. like the mind control thing. Like we don't see that a lot. Uh, it does remind me of uh, what we do in the shadows where there's a very funny scene of him outside the window. But it, uh, I, I love that we get to see a little bit of that, especially with the kids. And I think that that is probably the time to talk about like the window sequence because there's a few of <laughs> so them in cool. the movie. But where they're, they're floating outside the window, uh, smoke and fog is pouring in and they are kind of tapping at the window with uh, the they're not lit terribly well other than the, you know the moonlight behind them and then their glowing eyes and it is very striking every single time it's it's pretty unsettling um but toby hooper also um does this neat kind of uh visual trick to where i think all of these sequences are shot in reverse um mm-hmm. which gives them this very dreamlike sort of quality to them um, and even uh, a lot of the characters don't really remember what happened, similar to what would be if you if you had a nightmare, you wake up and you might remember details and things, but you don't really remember all of it. Um, and so, yeah, those sequences are probably some of the more memorable 
parts of the movie just culturally. And I think when you watch them, uh, it's it's pretty evident why. Yeah, I mean, aesthetically, I really love these sequences. I mean, those that that very first one is just, oh, man, it's everything. Like, yeah, the way that the, like you said, you point out the reverse shots. And, like, I love the way that the fog is, like, yeah, coming in and out, retracting. Uh, mm-hmm. Looks really cool. It's a very simple, practical effect. Um, you know, that especially the very first one, the kid, he has this smile on his face. And the way he's just scratching at yeah. the window, it's like, it's so vibey, uh, the way that the people kind of go into a trance. I do... I do like seeing, uh, yeah, some of the different effects that vampires have on people, whether it's that or even like simply like changing the temperature around them is, uh, you know, even fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then again, that but like I said, like while aesthetically I like those scenes, I'm also not very scared when all I know is it's like, yeah, vampires, you have to invite them in. So. I just don't need to open the window and we see that happen later. So it's like, again, uh, the, I don't feel, um, the, the danger behind these, but, uh, aesthetically though, makes for some really, uh, uh, vibey scenes. Well, it's, it's got the fright night rules, which I love is that you have to invite them in. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's yeah. really cool. So as far as that, uh, that's not kind of, I, I, I like that, that there are rules to it. It's not just, well, that's what I'm know. saying. All you have to do is you just don't do it then. <laughs> what about you? Well, but I think the idea is so even though we know that, um, your brain knows it, but your body mm-hmm. is compelled to like, you're no longer really in control of your own thoughts and of your own actions at that point. And there's that curiosity factor. Like when you see True. something that should not be, your brain almost plays a game of like, how far can we take this? You know, how many times have we heard a strange noise and have like gone towards <laughs> the noise, even though we know maybe we should run from it. True. And, and we see Mark is able to kind of resist them so why do we think that is? Is it just because he's a creepy kid that likes monsters? Or like, how, why, why do we think that he was able to resist? Well, he resists and... Uh, and the then he other... picks up the cross later, but like... He, yeah, like, and then I, I forget the other... Is it uh, Mike, I think is his name? That he also resists with, with the cross and he pushes, literally pushes one out the window, like crashes mm-hmm. out of the Which y'all know I love people in and out of windows and we get a few scenes in there. Uh, uh, Hooper... Hooper loves his window scenes. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I you'd mentioned the kid who's like a horror fan, which it's literally like Stephen King like split himself into two and like between him and himself. Ben. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's there's just no way that that's not you know this kind of self insert there because uh, the the kid is a big fan of horror movies, but not just horror movies like horror movies from the 1930s and the 40s and then you know into the 50s so and, and, and also sure magic that's... so we can have him conveniently escape some yes. ropes later don't don't yes. forget the magic but uh, that would have so, been yeah go, and yeah. again like that in the 70s and 80s like that was remember this is pre home video market mm-hmm. this is pre mm-hmm. you know not even just having like netflix and shutter and and Amazon Prime and ha- and Tubi and having like any movie at your disposal uh, at the click of a button, but like there weren't even video stores at this time. Like the home VCR didn't exist. What you had was like your Saturday night feature double feature or your Saturday yeah. afternoon monster movies. And growing up, like every Saturday, I were, would turn on. I remember WLVI Channel Fifty Six in Boston, and you would have like a Universal horror movie and a Godzilla movie, or you would have like Hammer horror with Universal. So 
this would have been like universal monsters would have been impossible to avoid if you liked horror movies at all back then. And that's why his whole house is like, I mean, he's kind of like a proto Tommy Jarvis instead of like making masks. He in, Instead of making masks, like he has all of the old, uh, and I forget the name of the model company. It's like a famous model company, but they made these monster kits. Um, you would have like Ackerman's famous monsters of Movieland magazine. Like this would have been just like for us, we had He-Man and Star Wars toys or whatever. Mm-hmm. This would have been this for Mark. So yeah. it wasn't surprising at all that he was so kind of well-versed in the vampire lore. I, I yeah. love, um, I, Mark has a, a twisted sense of humor because um, there's a scene where um, they're, whenever um, Ben is getting told the the story of uh, Hubie Marston and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and Ben talks about uh, seeing the ghost and he like describes what the ghost looked like. He's like, he was hanging with a noose around his neck and his skin was green as like eyes were puffed out. Mark has a ventriloquist dummy with green skin on a noose in his bedroom, which his bedroom fucking rules, by the way. Mm-hmm. Like, goddamn, like that kid is lucky. Um, but uh, but speaking of uh, we one king uh stand in, we gotta talk about the other one who happens to lead this film that we've barely talked about, and that is Ben. Um, Ben is um he's kind of fucking lame. He's kind of a dick when he rolls into town. He's just kind of rude to people. Um, his his charm he he, like he barely has to try because really susan is just like at just at anything at this point so he really doesn't even isn't very charming and i don't know he's just kind of i i i wrote at the end of the movie i go so what was his deal i go what 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 did he learn here um like what besides him being like um he's one of those writers in a movie that's like it seems like he's just a wannabe detective like he doesn't even seem interested in writing. So it's just like, what's your what's your deal, guy? There was a guy. lot of shit going on, though. I mean, let's face it. You know, you're hunting down vampires. You don't have time to get those pages in, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I did have to wonder, though, because that's kind of the whole conceit of him coming back to this town is he's doing research for a book that he's writing. And I, I couldn't help but wonder. I'm like, man, do authors like do they get like a stipend to just go wherever and just like mm-hmm. do research? Like, how does that work? But no, David Soul uh, portrays Ben. Uh, like you said, Devon's the, the lead of the film. Uh, if you don't know him from this, you would know him as Hutch uh, from Star and Hutch. Um, but yeah, I don't find him terribly compelling. Uh, he doesn't really provide anything that makes him special. I think when you have a character who is in a Stephen King movie, who is a writer who goes home to where they, you know, grew up, there is this kind of inherent sense of nostalgia and trying to kind of if not reclaim rekindle like that sense of childlike wonder a little bit um there is definitely is kind of a uh, a nostalgia angle to the film to where he does kind of go down memory lane you know kind of almost literally um but i don't find that he is able to offer too much more than that to make him um really compelling um he's got great outfits though 
<laughs> super distinct 70s hair too let's not forget the hair that he is rocking in this movie uh is something to behold but no i actually i found myself more compelled to susan um who is portrayed by bonnie uh bedelia uh who is also uh holly uh in the first Die Hard movie um but i kind of found myself wanting to spend a little bit more time with her and see what was going on with her but uh, ben just uh, wasn't doing it for me man <laughs> ben is rocking like the hulk hogan pre going bald hair oh yeah right there where it's long and then combed over like yeah <laughs> and david soul was considered like a sex symbol in the 70s which is I mean, wild to me man he's, he's, i mean he's decent like he's a decently good looking guy and it's funny like how this character in king adaptations also like has like a look you know because like i mean he very much we'd see jack nicholson looking very similar the very mm-hmm. next year in the shining you know so it's like kind of has that 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 generic look to him and um and i, I didn't find myself very compelled by susan either like uh those like because their romance didn't really feel like much either like i think yeah. this would have been more interesting if it was just all told through mark I think I think if we spent just pretty much all the time that we spent with Ben, but with Mark, I think that would have been a little more Mm -hmm. interesting because like I feel like there's going for Ben is like, oh, he's returning to face his fear about this house back in his hometown. But he doesn't even seem scared by it. He doesn't really seem like he gives a shit until like he doesn't really seem scared until like the very end of the film. I definitely go ahead. You for I'm sorry, Garrett, you first. No, I was just going to say that I definitely agree with that. I think Mark should be the protagonist of the movie because not only because it's been proven to work with Stephen King mm-hmm. to have, you know, this this childlike, you know, the adults don't really believe you. You He is an, an outcast in a way. His dad is a complete dickhead to him this entire movie. He's like, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to, you know, which I'm sure is probably something that Stephen King probably heard when he was younger. So it's kind of his way of, you know, a, a big middle finger to those na- uh, naysayers. So there's definitely that quality to it as well to where he is able to use this knowledge of the, the monster and his love of horror to his advantage. And it actually ends up saving him i just yeah i think mark is is a little bit more compelling but um i i was susan there is this uh, kind of angle of domestic abuse which i think is interesting as far as like this small town people know about it but people don't really say anything about it like i think that that's kind of kind of interesting because she does have this former lover who is uh, all up in her business like the entire film who's got a thing with Ben and it, it, it's complicated but I wanted to spend a little bit more time developing that because I think that there's something there but definitely Mark I think should have been the lead of the film. Yeah. Ben is definitely a bit more of a blank slate. I think what's interesting about his circumstances and, and Garrett you mentioned writers coming home to tap into that sense of childhood and nostalgia and usually that is like a happy place that someone wants to tap into like there are warm memories there in ben's case it's a bit different like ben is revisiting a place of like trauma for him like ben is returning to a home where he had the bejesus scared out of him yeah and it stuck with him to such a degree you know and once he started to dive into the history of the house and hubie marston you the more you learn about it the scarier that it becomes and it's become such this thing in him that he needs a return in order to either uncover its mysteries or just finally come to peace with it and put it behind him. And I'll say that like, unfortunately, one of the the issues with the miniseries is 
the house and the history behind it and the backstory of Hubie Markson, it all takes like a real backseat. Um, you get like a brief interchange with Ben and the teacher conversation between Ben and Jason about the history of the home as well as uh, Ben's experience with it. And then mm -hmm. at the end of the, the movie, like Ben hesitates and, going into the home because he's he's afraid like you he and i think soul does a good job in that moment of selling that fear yeah um i hate kind returning of like reg to the regressing you know yeah. to like back when he was a kid yeah and i hate returning to the book uh over and over but like in the book it's like front and center mm -hmm. um and there's a real sense of menace mm -hmm. with that history of the home um see i definitely wanted more of that like that's what yeah. i would have preferred like i like if he would have had just like this this you know very mm -hmm. like more stark for you like because i don't know if it's maybe david soul's performance and he's just a yeah. little too confident and like you know the way that right. he carries himself because again i just don't feel the fear until the end like once we're actually in the house and then like he almost his face is completely changed yeah. by how scared he and, is and this is why like you know garrett you mentioned this earlier like this would have been great if the if, if the new movie coming out if it ever gets released like that doesn't even have a release date anymore but if you did this as an eight episode mini series on hbo max like you could literally do one whole episode that is a flashback that just dives into the history behind the marston house and hubie yeah. marston and you find out that like hubie and barlow have been writing letters to one another and that's how, why barlow eventually comes to Salem's lot. You could do just an episode on that and really take your time with it. And I think that would be a terrifying 45 minutes. Well, it's, it's kind of hard to do that here. It's funny that you mentioned it because I've, I've been kind of waiting to say something and uh, Devon, I don't mean to, to step oh, no, on I, your, Go on ahead. Your, I was going to say it too. So I, go I ahead. know you're going <laughs> to mention this later in your movie math, but I, it's hard not to watch this and know, uh, have the knowledge of a recent Netflix series of Midnight Mass, very obviously inspired yeah. by Salem's Lot and just Stephen King in general. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's funny that like that, that series that, that, that is yeah is like yeah. Salem's I, again. I haven't read the book, so I don't know. And it's hard because again, it, it's the chicken and the egg kind of thing. But mm -hmm. Midnight Mass is such a great if not version of the story, uh, just kind of a tip of the hat, uh, mm -hmm. you know, an appreciation for something like Salem's Lot to where there are so many things that are done at Midnight Mass that I just wish that this did. Um, just the sense of mystery. Uh, I remember watching Midnight Mass and just being like, what is going on? <laughs> you know, uh, and the, there is this vampire angle, but not really, you know, and the town goes, you know, is there's definitely this cover up angle and dealing with past trauma and so many different things that are happening there. Also, you know, these very big uh, kind of sweeping religious themes throughout mm -hmm. the movie uh, and, and criticisms in this you know indictment of uh not necessarily religion itself but people who uh, mm -hmm. uh kind of uh carry the gospel um i i can't really say enough about that series if you ha i won't spoil it much but if, uh, at least i hope i haven't but if you guys haven't seen midnight mass it is 
so, so terrific. Uh, and I just, yeah, again, it's difficult to say because it is kind of a remix of this in a way, definitely an homage for sure. So it's just hard not to watch this and be like, damn, Midnight Mass did it way better. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember saying that at the time that like Midnight Mass was the best remake of Salem's Lot we're ever going to get. Mm-hmm. And we asked before, like, could you watch Salem's Lot? How do you know? How could you not know it's about vampires? I know when I watched Midnight Mass, like, it does a great job of hiding its reveal mm-hmm. for the first three episodes. Yeah. So I remember watching that and not knowing that, oh, this is what the monster is. Um, so it can be done in things if you can go in blind and do yeah. it well enough. That's why I think, to your point, like it is the best remake of Salem's Lot that we are ever going to see. Oh, I mean, yeah. I it, it's interesting because, I mean, I agree. and But it, it for me, it made me look back and, I, it, I, I mean, don't get me wrong, Midnight Mass is great, but now... I actually kind of discredit it a little bit because it doesn't have like even a based because it should definitely have a based on Salem's lot tag on it. And it's kind of and it's billed as this or Mike Flanagan original. And don't get me wrong. I love Mike Flanagan. He's great. But yeah. I don't know. Now looking at Midnight Mass, it does not feel very original because it borrows a lot from Salem's lot from what I can tell. Like I, it's I, quite again, a it, bit. This this isn't a, a Midnight Mass episode, so I won't go into it. But I I'm very much in Midnight Mass's corner as far as like I think you can definitely have an homage and and tell oh, a I story. I do too, but then know, acknowledge uh, but, it because it's. I mean, hard. I'm I'm sure Mike Flanagan and press and stuff like that wasn't like Stephen who you know I'm sure he was very <laughs> much uh, open. But as far as like giving Stephen King a writing credit, I don't know. But mm. uh, yeah, I uh, I think that. Mike Flanagan and what he crafted with that I personally is my favorite thing that he's done. I preferred it more than Hill House and, and Bly Manor. Uh, personally, I, I think it's mm. absolutely incredible. Well, uh, but again, that's just me. Well, speaking of writing credits, that is actually a great uh, segue. I did want to shout out um, the um, the uh, writer that did the teleplay for this because, man, the dialogue on this thing is snappy. This is like the conversations between these people are so kinetic and like interesting to me. Like I have like I wrote down like a few exchanges that are just like really, really great. So I had to give Paul Menashe another shout out because um like uh like uh even though I don't really like the the uh the romance between uh Ben and Susan, I really like their exchange when they're sitting by the lake. And, uh, you know, she says, how long will you be staying? He says, we'll see how the book comes along. Are you a slow writer? I'm medium. Well, I hope it's a long book. And we get many exchanges like that, like these like fun, like little tight verbal spars between these characters that really uh, add, um, you know, I feel like some authenticity between these relationships that, you know, you're watching. It really makes makes you um, able to like kind of buy into them and like, um, and it, you know, some of these moments also like, um, you know, get to show off, um, some of the comedy in this because yeah, again, Toby Hooper loves his dark comedy and there's, uh, quite a little bit of it in here. Cause like that introduction to, um, uh, the Coley, uh, and Larry scene and he's like, I like your shorts. You must like them too, because you're keeping them on like that. Where'd you get them? And then Larry just goes, Boston. <laughs> and he's like, they look good on you. And then like, you know, it's like, so I, I love all the little verbal spars throughout this film. Yeah, that's something that I have, you know, really 
grown fond of and uh, Devon hearing you talk about this I would definitely en encourage you like that's such a uh, such a an excellent part of like older movies is they don't have this dialogue that necessarily feels lifelike it's a little like mm -hmm. too fast like it's very quick yeah. um, I would recommend some like you know, Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy movies for sure, because they definitely have that uh, sort of attitude. Uh, but the one that I always recommend to people as far as like that type of dialogue is concerned is The Sweet Smell of Success, uh, directed by uh, and written by Alexandra McKendrick. Mm. Uh, it's like the snappiest, the quickest <laughs> dialogue to where everything you could just make a bumper sticker. It's like it's that uh, quotable. Um, but yes, that's something that, you know, I, I don't really think is found in movies nowadays just because really it's it's gone out of style. So I always love going to these, these, uh, you know, in this case, not necessarily a film, but going back and, and finding that kind of, it's not necessarily quips, but it's like, just, it's just snappy. There's everybody's always got a perfect retort. I just love that kind of, uh, quality to older films. Yeah. Very, um, you can definitely see where, uh, Sorkin is inspired by, you know, like, you know, most likely that those style of films, because it, mm -hmm. it definitely gave me uh, some shades of that. And, um, I just really liked a lot of the, um, the back and forth. Um, I really liked um, uh, Straker and the constable. Whenever the constable goes to visit him, he's like, you know, uh, I, I always love a uh, scene where the cops like, I'm not interrogating you, but they are, you I'm know, with small talk. You. Yeah. They're interrogating you with small talk. Uh, I really love those kind of scenes. So um, the, the constable and Straker had a really good uh, back and forth going between them. Um, and, so, and <laughs> Go ahead. Mike. One of the things I really love about, Gillespie as a character is he kind of like when you see him initially he kind of comes off like a rube small town sheriff right like a guy who really would be in over his head in anything larger than a town like this like mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to find a way out of a paper bag if you gave him a map but you can see that he's pretty shrewd like he's making the connection right away that hey there's a possibility we have three new people that have moved in at once. Like we might not get three new people move in this town in like a decade. How are they connected? If at all, he's asking some good questions. He puts it together just like Mark and Ben put it together. He's on the same page as them. Like he knows what's up. He's also smart enough to know I'm no hero. And I think like one of the great <laughs> things of this movie is he's like, he has his bags packed and he heads out of town with his family, which I mean, hey, you know, you're not a bad move. Like no, that's kind of a power move, right? That there. is picking your battles uh, for mm -hmm. real. There, there was a there was a moment early in the film where I thought he might be in on it mm -hmm. for for like a hot second. I, I thought they might have been doing some red herring vibes with him, but then as the film goes on and he actually, like you said, yeah. like he really starts investigating and doing and digging and like you know, like starting to put stuff together. Because uh, he also had this like very nice red ring on his finger, so I was like, "Is he in on it? Like, what's going on here?" But um, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I I do like me a classic king sheriff, or in this case, constable. <laughs> Yeah, he I'm just I was surprised that the film is not like super pro cop like its portrayal of him is is not the most heroic thing in the world. He literally is like, all right, see, ya. this is some wild shit. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> uh, we also see him like 
harassing uh, Elisha Cook Jr., who uh, he plays Weasel Phillips, <laughs> which is an excellent name. Uh, and I'm a, a big fan of uh, Elisha Cook. Uh, he has done some uh, terrific uh, films of, of, of yesteryear. Uh, 12 Angry Men is a, a big favorite of mine, but he plays like kind of the town kook, you know, uh, who's get who gets uh, harassed by also Constable Parkins Gillespie, which is the cop's name, is also an excellent name. <laughs> Oh, the, all these names, very, very King-esque. Larry Crockett. Uh, they feel like there's a Crockett in every King movie for some reason. <laughs> there should be. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, yeah, the, a lot of interesting characters. And again, like for me, that is, um, you know, what, you know, the meat of it for me. But then, you know, um, as we kind of talk about more of the horror elements of the film, um, you know, towards, you know, again, like I feel like, the, the horror in this film, the set pieces are really nice and look good and are thrilling. Um, but as far as the way that the horror serves the story, doesn't quite do it for me. Hmm. Like, uh, I, I got to disagree with that. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Elaborate. Finish that thought first. I kind of cut it. No, you, no, you go ahead and elaborate. We know that because it's a made for, and not only a made for television movie, but like a made for network television movie. Like mm-hmm. if you're making this for like, there's a difference between I'm making this for AMC in 2021. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm making this for like CBS television in 1979. So you're immediately hamstrung by like language and the amount of like graphic violence you can have on screen right away. Mm -hmm. But I think it works in its favor in some ways in that some of the set pieces are truly terrible and it doesn't shy away for some truly horrific actions. It's a movie where the inciting incident is a small like eight-year-old boy being kidnapped and then sacrificed. And they just show, I think like, his clothing like lying on the ground in the basement when they're delivering what they think is an armoire, but is actually the coffin. Um, You have like that shot of, I think it's Danny Glick is the older brother. Mm -hmm. Like when the nurse walks into his hospital room and his corpse is there and his corpse like is not only dead, but in this like unnatural position almost like he was fighting things off and she just drops a tray and runs like there's mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. horrific visuals in here um oh yeah i mean and i'm not i'm not doubting the quality mm-hmm. it's not the quality that i'm i'm down on because i think the quality is fantastic mm-hmm. in my opinion and um and i did kind of forget i don't know how i could forget about yeah some of the more horrific parts of because you guys know i love when we kill children in horror movies, you know, because mm-hmm. every everyone matters, everything it, it gives it that weight. And uh, did do have to shout out Hooper for the first death being uh, two children. Um, that's kind of a power move on, on I, Hooper's part. I, I think I, I have to take a middle ground between uh, not that Devon is like you know uh, shitting on the movie or anything, but for me, I think it's not necessarily the set pieces that I wish they had a bit more haha bite to them. It's not really that because I think when the movie pops, when it, mm-hmm. it does have those truly horrifying moments it gets to that point and you don't need to show a lot of blood because it, I think it is like genuinely terrifying. No, I want I, think, I want narrative meat. I think you guys are both missing what I'm trying to say. It's like I want mm-hmm. the the and I think Mike Mike Moore got what I was saying like cuz like yeah the the horribleness of these children, you know, you know being the first ones that kind of incite this is pretty terrible, but I think for the main characters going on, I want more mm-hmm. narrative meat to these scares. Gotcha. I I think for myself um it's more of uh, atmosphere uh, and, and Mike, you had uh, mentioned about like the network uh, TV limitations, which absolutely are at the time. But I'm, I'm, I'm more a little surprised 
surprised that it's a complaint that I have to have with this series because Toby Hooper, someone who also made the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, not a terribly violent movie, you know, famously so, uh, but it is a movie that is consistent in tone and is unnerving before anything even happens. Mm-hmm. It can get to that point without, you know, showing a drop of blood. And so I think that the film does have this very sunshiny sort of quality to it, which I think is an intentional creative choice to have this town be this sort of any town USA kind of energy to it. I just feel like if you were to kind of track the terror and then like the highs and lows, there are so, they're so wavering to where something like, you know, another Stephen King movie, like the shining or something like that. It's terrifying, you mm-hmm. know, pretty much through all the way through. And then you see the dead children and it gets even scarier. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like it's, it's flatlining. And then it's mm-hmm. super high peaks for me. For me, it was just kind of just like, not necessarily waiting for something to happen, but I wasn't kind of on the edge of my, uh, on the edge of my seat. I didn't feel that there was much tension or, or ambiance to the film Mm. uh, or just, you know, the, the tone, I think is just the, the quickest way to say it. I think the tone was just lacking for me a little bit. Maybe I'm a spoiled, but I just find the shining like more of a comedy than anything. Like from the minute Jack Nicholson is on, it's a dark comedy of errors. Yeah, it is like Jack Nicholson delivers like the second, you know, funniest performance of comedic performance of 1980 behind maybe Rodney Dangerfield and Caddyshack. Um, To me, like just it's so campy and ham and just ham fisted and over the top that like. I've never found the shine. It's gorgeous. It's and it's a terrific movie, but it plays out. And I've seen it with like live audiences where like it always shows in Father's Day at the Brattle Cinema in Boston. Mm-hmm. And like when we go, it's like the crowd is kind of laughing along to a lot of it. You know? Sure. Um, yeah, that's always definitely a hard line to walk. And I, I think yeah. I'm sure you're uh, aware as much as anybody, but like, you know, the the line between horror and comedy is, is so oh, thin yeah. that, but I'm not going to act like, you know, Jack Nicholson, like, hey, <laughs> Darlene, light See? of my life. Like it's fucking hilarious. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. you've got bits like that, but I right. think in my mind, uh, the scenes in The Shining that I'm more pointing to specifically are like the opening credits of the film, for mm-hmm. example, you've got this juxtaposition of this beautiful mountainscape and lake. Uh, but it's you know it's uh, paired with this really terrifying music sure. which gives this sense of menace to the movie which I think would be really fitting for this because there is this underlying under the surface something is happening in this town but we're not necessarily able to pinpoint mm-hmm. what exactly it is and I didn't even didn't really feel uh, emotionally I was able to engage with those parts on a fear level until it's obvious what the menace mm-hmm. is it's like yeah it's a fucking vampire and it's killing that kid like that's terrifying mm-hmm. other than that though when it's less obvious and it needs that subtlety i didn't find myself on board for that man i'm, I'm loving this really varied spread like it, it feels like we watched three different movies almost it's like <laughs> G- garrett wants a little bit more of the atmosphere and tension i like it i want more of the narrative stuff mike likes the narrative stuff but I, I think for me, like the best way to explain it in comparing it to other King adaptations and stories is I think it's, you know, the King stories work best when the the horror and the fear is, you know, firmly tethered to this, you know, established community. And um, I think just at least compared to other ones for me, I feel like we have horror happening and then we have the 
the town drama happening, but they don't commingle um, as well as I would like them to compared mm-hmm. to other um, versions of this done in you know other King stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, well, it's very quiet. It's a yeah. very subtle takeover of the town. Like most of the town is dead before anyone realizes anything has even gone wrong. And I kind of like that about the movie. Mm-hmm. And I also kind of love this idea that in this movie, the good guys don't necessarily win or it's a very like no. higher yeah. victory. Yeah. You know, like Susan is killed. Um, and, and I know that happens in the book. Like the movie follows the book pretty closely, but you don't have this idea of like, well, maybe we could rescue her. Uh, Mark is orphaned in a really yeah. chilling mm-hmm. scene, you know, yeah. like Mark escapes, but he's left an orphan. Uh, this town is in flames. Um, so you have like, even though the, the the good guys win in the end, there is like a huge cause. Like there's losses that pile up. Like Susan's dad getting impaled on yeah. that whole ah, sequence so is great. so fucking terrifying. I do love like once we get in the house, it's mm-hmm. a pretty great payoff because I mean, really, we've spent a lot of time. You know, we talked up Barlow. He doesn't come in until at like the hour forty five mark. Um, you know, and then so they hype him up in a way that's very satisfying. But then also the house, too, like, you know, because it's talked about so much. And mm-hmm. I like when yeah. we finally get in the house. It, uh, the set uh, design is fantastic, even though it does. It still looks like a set. But at the same time, I don't care because like yeah. it is just giving me that uh, covered in cobwebs, gothic beauty. And uh, I, I do like a lot of the sequences that happen there. But yes, uh, Straker. Uh, impaling the dad uh, is such a was like I was just like oh my god I love the way that's that, looked is is so fun that pullback reveal of the house when you see like and it's very reminiscent of like Todd Browning in in Dracula when you first see the scope of Castle Dracula and like yeah. see coming down like that cobweb stairs mm-hmm. except here like there's so much more rot and filth mm-hmm. and there's sense of decay like if the and again i think in a a, with more time and with more resources behind it you can maybe depict how maybe the roots of that decay have crept in to the rest of the town because very much like this town like over this house overlooks the rest of the town Uh, and i don't think you get that sense that it's infesting the rest of it which i think is what Garrett, I think it's kind of what you're saying that you want a little bit more of like, give me this feeling that because this house exists in this town, that there's like a very seedy underbelly or something that's wrong. It is very much like roses and sunshine in Salem's lot. It's a nice, like, I would like part of me wouldn't mind living there. And that's what kind of leads me to the end. Like I, I was saying, like, I couldn't one the mystery that i found fascinating at the beginning was is this house actually evil or not i feel like it, for me like it that and kind of confirms that it's like it's not really the house at all i i feel like the house in this story or film is just a, a very creepy house that people are scared mm-hmm. of and then these vampires just happen to you know move into it um because I, although everything is you know obviously caused from the vampires and i think that's an interesting reveal to at the end 
Yeah, as far as spooky, iconic houses go, this one is great. It's got like a really lovely silhouette to it. Mm -hmm. Um, The inside is like as gothic and uh, completely over the top as I want it to be. Every single corner of this house seems to be covered with asbestos. So if a vampire won't get you, that probably will. (laughs) Um, I love that they have like this super long, you know, Bates Motel kind of of staircase to it. Uh, Somebody is just begging to be pushed off that thing. You've also got... (laughs) The patented Toby Hooper, you know, wall of of uh, antlers and horns, like also a very Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of thing, which of course uh, the the father gets uh, impaled on. So yeah, uh, once they start to go into this house, it's really uh, everything that I I would want from a vampire movie like this. And you're totally right; it's got big uh, Bella Lugosi Dracula kind of vibes to it with uh, the, the casket uh, or the coffin and everything uh, also with uh, a touch of uh, Nosferatu as well which is you know kind of the same thing <laughs> uh, my new favorite way of describing stairs now is just begging to be pushed off of I'm gonna say they're that so big I'm, I'm gonna say so big. <laughs> I'm gonna say that whenever I go to an open house to the real estate agent and be like I'll like shake the banister and be like oh yeah Great for pushing someone off. <laughs> Be like, tell, what? Well, yeah. Well, look at the stairs in The Exorcist and just tell me that somebody's not going to slip oh, and fall. Oh, for, <laughs> no, I, I, I 100% agree. I just, I love that description. Um, Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. To me, yeah. So, um, we, we definitely get a lot of, uh, you know, the, they, they, they ramp up the gothic vampire stuff in this last, uh, 25 minutes or so. And I'm curious because I had, uh, a thing. I think the movie would have been fine ending with the house on fire with a fade to black on that because like that's a pretty dark ending with the screams and the implication of like, you know, Susan dying in the house rather than her coming back as a vampire for this uh, epilogue scene uh, to wrap up the, the Guatemala to like just bookend the movie. I think it should just fade it out on that fire. That would have been like a really bleak, dark ending. And I, I would have loved that. Mm-hmm. I, I do like how bleak and dark it does get where the whole town is fucked oh, like yeah, I really like that sure. uh, and I, I definitely like the the epilogue too uh, it, I think it gives the the protagonist like a more of a sense of it uh, affecting him personally this is somebody that he is kind of burnt down the past but this is somebody that he could have had a future with so it is kind of this both ends he's melting the candle on both ends in a way like he's not able to kind of move on from this fully maybe open a new chapter with this new person like it's an even bleaker like you've now not only taken away my past from me but also potentially my future now that he's you know running around the desert with this kid like hunting vampires you know i mean i i, I mean yes i agree I, I think it's maybe because one i don't really care about them two together but then also i think it just would have been bleaker if he's like because he like has to make that decision when he lights the house on fire he's like i don't know where she is i don't know if she's in here i don't know if she escaped but i have to do this and i think that in itself is already like yeah he's already fucked up so i don't think i need to like see it what about you mike sure yeah i you know i i think that like moving susan's death to the end of the it's like a book's bookend and a timestamp on it. Like mm-hmm. it kind of feels like this is the end of the story right now. And I kind of like the way the book ends in that they're still kind of on the run. There's almost like if you remember the old Incredible Hulk television show, <laughs> um, where like Bruce Banner or David Banner is always on the run 
and yeah. moving from one place to another hitchhiking on the side of the road <laughs> yeah you kind of get that feeling from the end of the novel salem's lot in that they're still being hunted down by the fragments of vampires that are left and here you kind of get more of like a and i get it it's television so you kind of want to have that definitive ending and remember mm-hmm. it's like a time in tv where there are only three stations so you don't have like just like 10 million people like you probably have upwards of about 30 or 40 million people tuning in to check this out sure yeah i'm curious it would have been a hit i'm definitely going to look at it now because i you yeah mike you might know more than i do but i'm I'm curious like did this rate well like were people interested in this at the time because i just other than this and like it i could be wrong but i just don't remember too much of this stuff kind of happening so it i know when it came out that kicked off like a number of like mini series because that was such a smash hit um that you had like the stand mini series after that there was i think a couple others as well like rose red uh which i think came a little bit further down the road but there were like a number of like mini series in the 90s and early shining redo with steven weber yeah Uh, you know mick garris had his hand in a lot of those like desperation was done again like king partnered with mick garris he kind of became the go-to stephen king television adaption guy yeah this was just like a standalone like let's do a cool uh tv of the week movie which back then would have still like again would have been huge and i know that like this got a number of awards for like you know best science fiction television adaptation and whatnot um best miniseries um actually won a couple emmy awards for like makeup and music um it was a big deal um it's kind of hard to fathom television viewership back then because nowadays like you the number one movie of the or show of the night might get like three or four million people watching it because we've kind of cut the cord and have moved to like streaming and getting our shows that way this would have been like there are three stations and everybody kind of gathered around the television set and you had very few options i'm searching Um, for the numbers but i can't i can't find anything yeah i wonder if this predates like kind of nielsen data because i know there's that kind of stuff on like for like i love lucy and stuff which is obviously Mm -hmm. before this so yeah i wasn't uh, seeing anything but yeah i'm seeing it received uh three uh emmy nominations as well as a, a nomination for an edgar award uh, for the 1980 uh, Emmys. So, uh, well, yeah, it seems to be critically acclaimed for sure. Well, speaking of awards, let's go ahead and uh, give our final thoughts on uh, Salem's Lot. Um, we'll we'll do our ratings out of uh, out of out of five books, um, you know, written by uh, one Ben, whatever his last name is. <laughs> um, uh, Mike, what are uh, go ahead and give your final thoughts. How many out of one to how many? out of five and you can do out of five okay like so i mean like it's definitely quaint it definitely has dated it's definitely dated um and i think that this would be perfect for a redo under like a longer mac uh my mini series but i think that hooper gets a lot of the atmosphere right i think he makes a lot out of a little i think it's a smart choice to differentiate between straker and barlow and there's just like warm and fuzziness to this that 
really brings me back to like when I first started to fall in love with horror movies. So I got it. We haven't even talked about James Mason as Straker, who he's very much pulling an Alec Guinness in Star Wars. Like, I know I'm too good for this material <laughs> type of deal. And there's a playfulness to Straker's oh, character. Yeah. Um, I give this four out of five stars because I think that like who, a lot of Hooper's touches that you see in Texas Chainsaw Massacre that you see in Poltergeist, which, you know, I think he was assistant director of Poltergeist under Spielberg. Um, that'll be controversial. Um, yeah, that's, that, that's, it's a little, it's, 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 yeah. <laughs> it depends who you ask. Um, it depends <laughs> who you ask. Um, there's a dude who like, he runs a Poltergeist account. If you ever, ever anywhere online mention Steven Spielberg directed Poltergeist, he jumps right in and scolds you. Hell I yeah. think I, I blocked him after a while. Um, <laughs> I give this like four out of five stakes through the heart because I just think that it gets, especially given the limitations, it gets so much right. And it's a much more faithful Stephen King adaptation than what you're going to see when you get to the late eighties, early nineties, where there's like, there's some real dreck. I mean, there is like, you get to thinner and you're like, this came out the same year as scream. You gotta be fucking kidding me. This is bad. <laughs> this is bad. Uh, well, you, I'm very excited to be uh, trudging into the dreck. <laughs> Cause we've got a few uh, coming up that I'm very excited to talk about. Uh, but for me, I am, um, I'm a big fan of, of, horror films even beyond this as far as like going back into the past so i think for me the the quaintness of it necessarily isn't the problem i just think that there is a lot of potential there for the story being told here and i think just with who's involved i was just a little surprised that i don't like this more than i do um i think it's sporadically horrifying uh but rarely interesting uh unfortunately i don't think i'm able to really engage with the narrative that's being presented and i think you you talk about this being so faithful to the book which i think is maybe a reason why you like it so much but it's funny because the reason i think i dislike it as much as i do because i think when you're adapting something you need to do just that you need to adapt it and it needs to change um i think i'm i felt like i was just verbally or you know visually reading a book if that makes sense i know everybody reads a book visually but i mean like it felt like it was just like okay the book is the script you know and i don't necessarily think that that's how book to screen adaptation should or could work, uh, work even though there are differences as far as the way uh, certain characters are portrayed and things like that I just think as, as, as far as the way the story is told it feels a little a little too booky to me which um, I, I, I think doesn't necessarily work in its favor here there are a lot of things that I do like about it a lot of things that I appreciate um, about this uh, film uh, coming out in this time but for me ultimately it's just not super memorable um, other than those few key sequences um, but I do love the poster for this movie it is a killer poster I'll, I will say that so for me um, I am at a crisp uh, what, did, what did we decide on mistakes or rebooks these are these are copies of air dance written by Ben Mears. <laughs> <laughs> I will give it a crisp three out of five copies of Air Dance. <laughs> uh, what, yeah, and we never got the answer to what it, why it was called Air Dance. Uh, uh, again, when that this open it, the scene of Ben and Susan meeting, it's supposed to be cute and charming, and like that later on they have some some nice exchanges. But this first, uh, him uh, noticing his book, 
and doing the whole, oh, I see you reading my book. Oh, and then like asking her questions like, oh, you're bored. That's why you stopped reading it. Like, get, bro, like go away. You are just stop. Like that was, yeah, I was, I was off. Uh, yeah, anyways, um, I, I really liked the first half of this movie. Like I was really enjoying it. Um, you know, again, I really liked, um, the cast of characters and the small town and the, the way that it, you know, went back and forth and like, kind of, again, like had these like just interesting loops between each characters being connected, but then also, whether they're dealing with human drama or, you know, the supernatural stuff going on. And, um, and like I said, um, the, the, the kind of smoke screen of this evil house, you know, um, when really the, the problem around them is something else. Um, it, but not my favorite as far as a vampire movie goes. Um, so, um, you know, I, there, there's things that I just really like, but then there are things that I just, um, don't, don't vibe as hard with. So I'm going three and a half out of five copies of air dance on this one. Um, three and a half is usually reserved for like my hot messes. Um, and I wouldn't say this is a hot mess cause it's not, it's actually very well put together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Hooper directs the shit out of this movie. Um, I actually haven't seen as many of Hooper's films and I definitely want to now like seeing this has made me want to look at some of his other films because like he really does do a great job with the restrictions that he had you know doing this as a miniseries you know and I think Huber's sensibilities really lend themselves well to a Stephen King story so um yeah definitely things that so I enjoy it as a Stephen King adaptation um or a Stephen King uh story but as far as a vampire movie it's kind of mid in that department for me so three and a half out of five yeah 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 so uh, let's go ahead and uh, see what other stories Salem's Lot might have influenced and uh, talk about some other recommendations. All right, to close out our episode of the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club, we like to play a fun game called Movie Math. Uh, essentially, you just take a few movies, you can add them together, multiply them together, uh, all of which just have to equal uh, the movie that we discussed today or the TV miniseries that we discussed today. Uh, so I guess it's TV miniseries math. <laughs> so, uh, Mike, what uh, do you have in your equation? Sure. So we all mentioned Midnight Mass, and a couple things about it is whether or not, like, Flanagan um, <laughs> recognized the influence of it. The island in Midnight Mass is called Crockett Island. Like that is the oh, as a direct nod to Larry Crockett. And you can see in Riley's bedroom, like there is like a copy of the novel and there. So, you know, Flanagan is, is tipping the cap there. So Midnight Mass is the big one. Uh, 30 Days of Night as well. Again, this like town getting taken over and overrun by vampires. I think like that's another pretty obvious nod to Salem's lot. Um, Dracula is huge. Um, the, the setup of Salem's lot, like it mirrors Dracula from having this like Gothic structure overlooking a town to taking over more and more of the real estate of the town to uh, James being the Van Helsing of the um of the of the um, novel to Susan being sacrificed, much like Miss Lucy, it, it really mirrors Dracula in a lot of ways, but does it in a new and a written and fun original way. I also had Night of the Living Dead in here as well, and that you have like basically it feels like the vice is turning and 
instead of having a sprawling town, the area gets smaller and smaller and smaller as more and more monsters are added into the fray. So I had kind of Night of the Living Dead in there as a mm. bit of a, a, a nod as well. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, we uh, we have a couple similar ones because uh, I have a lot of things in my equation and I was mm-hmm. moving stuff around this whole episode. And um, so one, I didn't even think about it until as we were kind of recording that, you know, a lot of Fright Night inspiration for mm. sure as far as, you know, the uh, and, and, you know, especially in uh, they go, they go, hey, Sam's Lot. They 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 had a little gayness. Why don't we put a why don't we get more gay with it? Um, or or in my opinion, Jerry is bi. I don't think he's gay. Um, yeah, go back and listen to our Fright Night episode. Um, we talked about it like a year or so ago. Um, but um, so definitely a lot of Fright Night inspirations, especially um, I think you know Evil Ed, kind of a little inspiration of Mark there with his um, you know, obsession uh with like old school monsters and things like that. And, um, and, you know, it's, um, and they kind of go a step further where it's like, you know, uh, suburbia, you know, not, not quite a small town, um, but suburbia, it's like small enough to where it's like people know each other and people talk, but at the same time, like there's too many people to like, notice things going on. So like a, a different, uh, kind of take on it, um, without it being, um, but they don't really kind of go to like the infestation parts of it. And then, um, you mentioned 30 days of night. Um, you know, and I mentioned, I was going to say, um, I'm not a big fan of like animalistic creature-esque vampires, Mm -hmm. except in 30 days a night. I think it works really well, um, because they, even though they are animalistic, they still appear very human. And, um, I don't know, it's, it's very different, like, cause the, the way that they infest that town, um, it's very intelligent, but it also like has this, like, like a pack of wolves almost like. Um, the, I really enjoy the way that they kind of did like the, you know, leaned on the infest infestation point. And again, small town drama, everyone knows each other. Um, definitely listen to the psychoanalysis episode of 30 days a night. It was a comfort horror episode and it's a uh, hilarious one of your guys' oh. hornier episodes. Um, because how can you not? We have a lot not? of horny episodes. I mean, I mean, how can you not, um, in that one for sure. And, uh, but yeah, big fan of 30 Days a Night. And then, um, of course, we've talked about Midnight Mass uh, more than I intended uh, to talk about in this one. But I mean, it, I, I, again, watching this movie for the first time, I didn't know how much um, influence that it had in Midnight Mass. Um, so I have adding all those three together for like my vampire section of it. And I want to throw in another film. Um, and divide it by it kind of had a Jaws feel to it as far as um, mm. some of these uh, the the small town drama aspects and then also how how um, how Ben kind of has like a revolving door of sidekicks for the second half of this because first he's uh, paired up with uh, the teacher but then the teacher um, which again love Hooper and his dark comedy um, this this heart attack scene is hilarious to me for some reason. Um, after he like def- you know gets the vampire out the window, but then has this heart attack for like two minutes straight. Um, for some for some reason, it's very funny to me. Um, so but Ben goes through him, and then he gets hospitalized, and then he goes in with the priest, and then he goes in with uh the dad, and then the um and then fucking uh the doctor comes in at the end. Like so, he has this revolving door of sidekicks. Um, 
that is kind of funny just in the way that in Jaws you have like the three different, um, you know, people working together in their backgrounds to uh, defeat this monster. And like, you know, Jaws spends a lot more time talking about the shark uh, than, than actually seeing it. And that's kind of a similar thing with Barlow. You know, uh, the movie does a really good job of like hyping Barlow up, uh, especially Straker. You know, Straker just is his hype man. I think that's their relationship. And, um, and yeah, so that, that's, that's my equation and got, got a lot going on. So it's those three vampire movies divided by Jaws. Uh, what about you, Garrett? Uh, I also want to note that Jaws also has uh, a Hooper in the movie too. Ah. So there's that similarity there. Ha ha. Uh, for me, it's probably one of my more simple equations here. Um, we got another Stephen King movie uh, with 1990s, the TV miniseries, uh, It. Uh, I put that in there for a lot of reasons. Um, I think that is also a story about going back and confronting uh, childhood trauma uh, and things that maybe you thought that you got over, but you never quite did. uh, And you're realizing how much it's affecting you as an adult. Um, Also, the fact that that's also a miniseries. Also, it's a miniseries that includes a lot of the stuff from the book, too. Um, Maybe a little bit too much. Um, Also, doesn't have terribly uh, interesting adult protagonists. Uh, That might be (laughs) a bit of a hot take here. Um, And then I'm adding that I wish I could multiply it because we've kind of set a, a, a false rule here that multiplying it is a bit more of an aesthetic kind of tone choice. Uh, but mm. I'm adding it uh, begrudgingly, uh, Nosferatu to that um, because that is also a, a vampire story. Obviously, you have the aesthetic similarities between Nosferatu uh, and the the vampire uh, in this movie. Uh, but like Dracula, you have that small town sort of house on the hill kind of vibe, and them, you know, that shadow of the vampire uh uh, not uh, that that wasn't a pun i promise uh kind of looming over the uh the the small town and and uh, preying on the the town's people as it were uh so yeah i think you've got the uh, it for a myriad of reasons uh adding uh together with um nosferatu all of which to equal the movie that we talked about today salem's lot to be honest i would have multiplied them that's what i was thinking in my head i thought you were i thought you would have uh I would have, but this has zero German expressionist kind well, of uh, energy well, to it, and Nosferatu is a super vibey movie. And well, it's, if you mix the tone, but if you mix the tones between that and the It miniseries, you oh, kind of get like a median. Saying. So I would have. I see what you're saying. So, yeah. so I would, I would have did in that way. Um, yeah, we kind of do like multiplication is like kind of like our like yeah aesthetics usually more of a um, yeah style type deal. Uh, dividing is like kind of like when you want to like take parts of a movie, um, yeah. you know, and like or maybe a very specific part of a movie and be like, because obviously Jaws is not very similar to any of these. But if you divide it, I'm kind of uh, canceling the parts out and then taking what's left of Jaws. So like that's a, a little insight, I guess, to how our movie math is typically worked. <laughs> The rules are there are no rules. <laughs> yeah, no, there there is no rules. Yeah, math math is math is bullshit. We made that shit up. You know, we we made it up, so it has no rules. Um, but Mike, thank you so much for um oh, uh, bringing you. this one because again, this is the first time watching. Um, not gonna lie, I was not very excited to watch it because for some reason I just didn't think I was gonna enjoy it, but mm-hmm. I very much did. So thank you. And I'm the, glad to bring it to the table. Yeah, go yes. ahead and uh, tell everybody about your uh, your podcast. Sure. So I am the host and co-host of a pair of podcasts, which you should immediately add to your listening mix. Uh, not because of me, but because the fantastic co-hosts I do them with. Uh, I f- started the pop. Po- let's try that again. 
I started the pod and the pendulum back in, I think, 2019. We are a show that covers horror movie franchises. So every week or every other week, we bring you a movie in a franchise and we just go like one by one through them. So right now we're actually doing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So we have like a two-part episode. I think it came out to be about four and a half hours altogether oh, on God. Toby Hooper's masterpiece. Yeah, we did, did not feel like it was that yeah, long. Yeah, we did. We are... <laughs> Currently, like the latest episode is on uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning, but we have like a wonderful gang of contributors and Devon is part of that. So you can hear more Devon on our show on a frequent basis. I also um co-host the uh show called psychoanalysis a horror therapy podcast along with jen adams of the loser club and laura understall where we look at horror movies through a psychological lens so we look at mental health and horror and how it's depicted where every we do four shows a month and two of those shows every month are on a specific mental health topic so depression anxiety uh narcissism paranoia um ptsd like you name it and we've kind of covered it uh this month we have three episodes in the mix because we're doing um cults and religious fundamentalism and how persons fall prey to them we also do uh comfort horror movies every other week where we will uh, have a guest on to talk about a horror movie that kind of gives them the warm and fuzzies. And Devon was just guested on our latest one that's just posted mm -hmm. where we brought Blade to the table. So that is Psychoanalysis. That's a horror therapy podcast. And look, as a licensed mental health counselor, like it is a subject near and dear to my heart. So I really love being able to talk about the psychology behind horror movies. Yes, go check all that stuff out. I mean, I've shouted out both podcasts uh, multiple times on the show, and um, and if it, and not that I don't get as vulnerable on the show here because I do, um, but if you really want to hear me uh, get very sentimental, uh, go listen to that Blade episode because I really do uh, love that movie and it kind of means mm -hmm. the world to me. So go check that out. Go listen to those shows, Garrett. What are you working on right now? Oh, same old, same old. Uh, you guys can uh, follow me over on uh, TikTok and Twitter, uh, as well as Letterboxd, just at Garrett McDowell. Um, if you guys want to get some uh, TikTok, like Halloween movie recommendations, I'm actually doing like a new series over there, multiple part uh, uh, installments, just recommended movies that you should watch this Halloween on on Netflix, on Amazon Prime, HBO Max, whatever's going on over there, uh, Hulu, a bunch of different uh, streaming services. So if you guys are in need of uh, some streaming uh, recommendations or movies that you maybe didn't even know are on streaming now, um, you should uh, check that out. Um, if you want some more podcast goodness, uh, I host a, a Star Wars podcast with my buddy Noah called the Scum and Villainy Podcast. Uh, Going to be reviewing new episodes of Andor, which will be starting very soon. So uh, if you want some of that in your ears, give us a, a little subscribe. Yes, of course. Make sure you guys go check that stuff out. And I know we shouted out last week, but Barbarian did release this weekend. Um, so go watch Barbarian and then go check out so Garrett's good. interview with uh, the director. Um, I still have not watched it yet. So you guys will hear my thoughts on Barbarian, I'm sure, very soon. But um, yes, go watch uh, Garrett's interview on YouTube. And yes. it will also be the audio version will be here on the podcast feed as well. Yes. We'll be uh, posting it soon. It is a spoiler video. Um, 
Like it's it's a movie that if you guys haven't seen yet, I wouldn't look up anything. Don't watch trailers, plot synopsis. Don't just go in cold. Uh, it's it's brutal and uh, it's a complete thrill ride. Uh, but the the uh, interview is a spoiler interview because it's kind of hard to talk about the movie without really mentioning some spoilers. So do yourself a favor, go see it this weekend in a packed theater, and then yeah, listen to the interview. Uh, Zach was uh, super super nice uh, and uh, very uh, feel very fortunate to have uh, had chatted with about this movie that I really really loved yes I, I i still i've managed to still i have not looked at anything anytime i see barbarian i just keep scrolling because I, I just i'm very excited and uh can't wait to do that but um as far as finding me i'm on twitter and instagram at underscore daddy disco and on letterbox as well um and we already shouted out the other podcast appearances i've been making lately so go check those things out and uh also um, so I guess I'll take the time if you uh, want to hear more Stephen King things, uh, go check out the Losers the Losers Club podcast. We've had uh, Rachel Reeves on the show uh, a couple times and uh, a few of the other Losers Club members, as well as uh, the King cast. And they do um, a lot of they have a lot of big name guests and they talk uh, some Stephen King stuff and uh, they have some uh, really fun interviews on there. So if you want more Stephen King stuff, go check those podcasts out as well. And uh, next week, we'll be celebrating Stephen King's birthday himself, uh, his birthday week. And uh, how else are we going to do that besides talking about his uh, directorial efforts of a maximum overdrive uh, to celebrate King? So we're going to get a little silly for a little bit. But I'll go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bloody Blunts Pod. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. We appreciate you. And until next time, guys, stay lifted. <laughs>